Peace be upon you. Uh, this last week in the New York Times opinion blog, there was an article entitled, Why Our Children Don't Think There Are Moral Facts. It was written by Justin P. McBrayer, who's an associate professor of philosophy at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. And uh, the article talks about how the youth these days, you know, actually a lot of people these days, they don't consider uh, morality as something that's universal and factual. Uh, they consider uh, moral behavior as something that's just uh, dependent on the individual, the group, and their personal beliefs, making it just an opinion. And when you take this to its logical conclusions, uh, you come to a very disturbing kind of reality where any kind of action, any kind of immoral, hurtful, harmful uh, behavior can be justified through the eyes of certain individuals. And as human beings, we have to basically elevate ourselves beyond the realm of animals. Uh, God gave us this intellect. God gave us this reasoning, this logic. And we know for what is in our hearts that there's certain things that are immoral and no human being should be justified into doing. And when we basically write that off as mere opinion, that there is no good, there is no evil, there is no right, there is no wrong, um, we end up in a very chaotic, uh, disturbing kind of reality. And... Um, God willing, I'll send a link to the uh, the article. And what I wanted to do is, you know, uh, reading this piece reminded me of the moral argument. Uh, and the moral argument is in regards to God. And the argument is that without God, there is no uh, morality. You know, without God, there is no good, there is no bad. It's all relative. I mean that what may be good, bad to someone may be good to someone else. And therefore, it's just an opinion of one individual or another. And, you know, God, by definition, his attributes are what we strive for, for morality, right? When God explains himself as being kind, compassionate, most gracious, most merciful, we realize that these are the, uh, the realms of morality that we try to mimic. And God tells us exactly what immoral behavior is. And these are the things that we try to avoid, we try to, uh, to uh, uh, condemn. And um, as opposed to trying to put, you know, uh, a uh, podcast myself in regards to this topic just because it's such a heavy topic uh, there's some awesome pieces that I found online um, one in particular is by Doug Powell uh, Doug Powell is an American musician Christian apologist and uh, author graphic designer programmer seems like he does a lot but uh, he put together two pieces on uh, YouTube in regards to the moral argument and uh, God willing I'm gonna play that and it's really well well articulated uh, but the first uh, audio I'm going to play is from William Lee Craig. So William Lee Craig is an American uh, analytical philosopher. Uh, he's done a number of debates. He's very well spoken. And he put together this short video in regards to uh, the, this moral argument. And um, the video starts off uh, with uh, asking the question, is it possible to uh, not believe in God and to do good? And it shows an atheist going and getting a kitten out of a tree. And uh, from there, it says that, hey, look, it's possible. Uh, but I'm going to just play the audio and, you know, taking that context, uh, that piece into context, um, the audio itself is pretty self-explanatory. So if you want to go online, uh, you can look it up. It's called The Moral Argument, uh, William Lee, Lee Craig, and the other one is Moral Argument, Doug Powell. Uh, both videos are awesome. God willing, we'll uh, listen to both those, and then, inshallah, we'll uh, read some of the verses in the Quran in regards to the uh, moral argument. Can you be good without God? Let's find out. Absolutely astounding. There you have it. Undeniable proof that you can be good without believing in God. But wait. The question isn't, 
can you be good without believing in God? The question is, can you be good without God? See, here's the problem. If there is no God, what basis remains for objective good or bad, right or wrong? If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And here's why. Without some objective reference point, we have no way of saying that something is really up or down. God's nature provides an objective reference point for moral values. It's the standard against which all actions and decisions are measured. But if there's no God, there's no objective reference point. All we're left with is one person's viewpoint, which is no more valid than anyone else's viewpoint. This kind of morality is subjective, not objective. It's like a preference for strawberry ice cream. The preference is in the subject, not the object. So it doesn't apply to other people. In the same way, subjective morality applies only to the subject. It's not valid or binding for anyone else. So, in a world without God, there can be no evil and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. God has expressed His moral nature to us as commands. These provide the basis for moral duties. For example, God's essential attribute of love is expressed in His command to love your neighbor as yourself. This command provides a foundation upon which we can affirm the objective goodness of generosity, self-sacrifice, and equality. And we can condemn as objectively evil greed, abuse, and discrimination. This raises a problem. Is something good just because God wills it, or does God will something because it is good? The answer is neither one. Rather, God wills something because He is good. God is the standard of moral values, just as a live musical performance is the standard for a high-fidelity recording. Without your love. The more a recording sounds like the original, the better it is. Likewise, the more closely a moral action conforms to God's nature, the better it is. But if atheism is true, there is no ultimate standard. So there can be no moral obligations or duties. Who or what lays such duties upon us? No one. Remember, for the atheist, humans are just accidents of nature, highly evolved animals. But animals have no moral obligations to one another. When a cat kills a mouse, it hasn't done anything morally wrong. The cat's just being a cat. If God doesn't exist, we should view human behavior in the same way. No action should be considered morally right or wrong. But the problem is, good and bad, right and wrong, do exist. Just as our sense experience convinces us that the physical world is objectively real, oh. our moral experience convinces us that moral values are objectively real. Every time you say, Hey, that's not fair, that's wrong, that's an injustice, you affirm your belief in the existence of objective morals. We're well aware that child abuse, racial discrimination and terrorism are wrong for everybody, always. Is this just a personal preference or opinion? No. The man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5.
What all this amounts to then is a moral argument for the existence of God. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. But objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Atheism fails to provide a foundation for the moral reality every one of us experiences every day. In fact, the existence of objective morality points us directly to the existence of God. Is there actually such a thing as objective morality? Are right and wrong real things that all people at all times are obliged to obey, or are they just matters of opinion? Was Adolf Hitler evil? If so, why, and where did the standards he's judged by come from? The moral argument for the existence of God tries to show that moral values must be objective and universal to make any sense. And if moral values are objective, the source must be a transcendent personal being who is concerned with the actions of human beings. This is one of the most powerful arguments for God's existence because all of us have a sense of right and wrong, good and evil, and the way things ought to be. The question is how to account for why that is. There are two basic ways to view morality, as relative or as objective. The most widely held view in our culture is called relativism. Relativism holds that societies or individuals decide what is right and wrong, and that those values vary from culture to culture or person to person. There are no objective, universal moral truths, just conventions for behavior that are created by people and that are subject to change. There are three different forms of relativism, cultural relativism, conventionalism, and ethical subjectivism. Cultural relativism is based on the observation that different cultures seem to have different values. And since they all have different value systems, there must be no right system, no objective morality. For example, some cultures, like Mexico, declare abortion to be abhorrent and have passed laws prohibiting it. Other cultures, like the United States, permit abortion as a legal option open to any pregnant woman for any reason. Still other cultures, like China, have actually required abortions under certain circumstances. Cultural relativism says that because each culture is holding to its own view of morality, and because these views differ, there must be no objective morality. There are several problems with this line of thinking. One is that observing how cultures behave is just that, observation, and nothing more. At best, these observations are simply statements of fact. Morals are not descriptions of the way things are. Morals are prescriptions of the way things ought to be. Just because things are a certain way doesn't mean that they should be that way. When Popeye says, I am what I am, he's making a statement of fact, not a moral claim. If he said, I ought to be what I am, then he would be making a moral claim. Another problem with cultural relativism is its premise that different answers to a given question means that there is no right answer. Just because Mexico, the United States, and China disagree on the issue of abortion does not mean there is no right or wrong approach to abortion. If two golfers disagreed on how many strokes one of them took on a hole, it doesn't mean there's no incorrect answer. Either both of them are wrong or one of them is right. They cannot both be right. 
When people disagree about morality, it does not mean there is no objective morality. Finally, let's say someone disagrees with cultural relativism. If the cultural relativist is to remain consistent, they must agree that the fact that there is a disagreement means there is no wrong view of moral theory. But as a cultural relativist, they are claiming there is a correct view of moral theory and that all the other views are incorrect. As a result, they can't live their own philosophy. On the other hand, if the cultural relativist claims that the opposing view is a wrong way to think about the issue, then again they show they are not actually a relativist. Thus, cultural relativism cannot give an account for the basis of morality. The view that each society decides what is right and wrong for itself is called conventionalism. In contrast to cultural relativism, which says there is no right or wrong answer, conventionalism claims that there is a right and wrong, but it varies from society to society. The majority rules, and morality becomes simply what is legal. If conventionalism is true, the results are counterintuitive and very hard to live out. For example, let's say a law was passed that made having blue eyes illegal and that the penalty for having blue eyes is death. There would not only be nothing immoral about the law, but in fact it would be immoral to have blue eyes. But we don't need to invent absurd hypothetical situations to see what a conventionalist society would look like. Conventionalism was the philosophy of Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Thus, when the Nazis declared Jews to be subhuman and deserving of death, there was no recourse for the Jews. The law, by definition, was moral. The large community of societies who protested were ignored. After all, what grounds did they have to critique German society? As a result, six million Jews were systematically killed, and the defense given by Nazis at the Nuremberg trial was conventionalism. It couldn't have been wrong. It was the law, they said. We were only following orders. One of conventionalism's problems is that it leaves no room for society to be reformed. If society defines morality, then a person who protests against the laws of that society is, by definition, immoral and criminal. If a society were to change a law, it would not change from immoral to moral or from unjust to just. The law could only change from one rule to another. It would simply be different not better or worse. Think about what this means. If conventionalism is true, then people like Gandhi, Jesus, and William Wilberforce would be among the most egregious criminals that ever lived. Their crime? They thought society could be changed for the better. The criminalization of such moral reformers is, of course, wildly counterintuitive and helps show the bankruptcy of the conventionalist view. Ultimately, conventionalism is about power, not morality. Whichever way the wind blows, the will of the majority is what is moral. Like a gang of bullies forcing into submission those who would dare oppose them, conventionalism forces its preferences on everyone by defining itself into power. And like cultural relativism, this fails to account for morality. The most widespread form of relativism is ethical subjectivism. In this view, individuals decide what is right and wrong for themselves and themselves only. Morality is nothing more than personal preference and opinion. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. One of the major problems with ethical subjectivism has to do with language. 
Conversation about values and moral topics becomes completely incoherent. No longer could anyone say what was right or wrong with any meaning. The best you could say is, I choose not to do that because it's wrong for me, or I don't prefer that. An ethical subjectivist could not meaningfully call the terrorist attack on September 11th evil or wrong, and they couldn't call the rescue workers good or heroic and make any sense. When an ethical subjectivist makes a statement about the morality of an event or action, they're not talking about anything other than their opinion of it and not about the thing itself. The fatal flaw in this view is that it's clearly self-refuting. Again, consider the statement, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. The statement makes no sense. It says that truth claims can only apply to the person making them. The problem is that if this statement is true, it applies to everyone, which, of course, means the statement is false. A very effective way to expose the bankruptcy of ethical subjectivism is by using examples of obvious moral clarity that apply to all people at all times. Torturing babies for fun is wrong is a well-known example. When confronted with this statement, an ethical subjectivist would then be in the unenviable position of having to argue against it. They may not personally think it's right, but they could not say it is wrong and be consistent. Just imagine what kind of people this system produces. In this system, an ethical subjectivist must walk past a rape in action since they can't condemn it for anyone but themselves. An ethical subjectivist must allow trespassers into their home, thieves to burgle it, and arsonists to burn it as long as the trespassers, thieves, and arsonists don't believe their acts are wrong. But nobody lives this way. Or do they? One way to judge a moral system is to look at the kind of heroes the system produces. Take the objective moral stance of the Judeo-Christian view. The heroes are many and mighty. Jesus, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr. immediately come to mind. But what kind of hero best exemplifies ethical subjectivism? Lived consistently, it produces moral monsters, people who see no need to care about others and are unaccountable to anything but their preferences. Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, Albert Fish, one of the inspirations for Hannibal Lecter, Ed Gein, the inspiration for Psycho, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the Buffalo Bill character in Silence of the Lambs. These are the heroes of ethical subjectivism. Morals are not opinions or personal private decisions, and they're not descriptions of behavior. They are prescriptions for behavior and motives that have the force of a command. They have a sense of obligation and oughtness that is universal, authoritative, and applies to all people in all places at all times. One way we come to moral knowledge is directly. We know it through intuition. This immediate knowledge is important because some things are known only in themselves. No investigation of facts or reasoning is required. This is precisely what's demonstrated by clear case examples like torturing babies for fun is wrong. Nobody has to investigate this claim before they can take a moral stance on it. Our intuition enables us to recognize it as self-evident. Just because we have moral intuition does not mean we don't have to develop it, however. Even though we have an intuition for logic, we still have to cultivate a reasonable mind to better act on that intuition. The same is true with moral intuition. We have to cultivate our minds to be sensitive to it and to act on it.
There are several ways to show that all people, even self-professed relativists, actually believe in objective morality at their core. As we've seen, one way is through clear case examples. These examples don't have to be confined to outlandish claims like the torture example. Often, conversations present opportunities to make this point in a much more personal way. Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer was a master at this. He once had a conversation with several students, one of whom disagreed with Schaeffer's moral objectivism. The student claimed that there was ultimately no difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. Another student who was listening decided to put that belief to the test. He picked up a tea kettle full of boiling water and held it over the first student's head as if he were about to pour it on the student. He then said, there is no difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. The first student realized that in his worldview, he couldn't object to the threat, and he got up and left the room disillusioned. What makes these kinds of situations so powerful is that they are opportunities to take the conversation out of the abstract and put it into the everyday world we all live in. In this light, the force of the objectivist position is undeniable no matter how hard someone tries to resist it. Another way of exposing objectivism in a relativist is to discover their passion and relativize it. Let's say, for example, a relativist believed deeply in animal rights. A moral objectivist could tell the relativist how he's trying to find a new shampoo and just tested out a couple of brands by rubbing the shampoo into the eyes of a dog to see if there was any adverse reaction. The relativist will betray what they say they believe and object to these actions, and rightly so. But by objecting, they demonstrate the reality of moral objectivism. Moral laws are not personal opinions. So, objectivism stands out as the only coherent view of morality and the only way that can be consistently lived out. At this point in the argument, all that's been shown is that there are very good reasons for believing that objective morality exists. Two questions now arise. Where did morals come from, and why should we obey them? To find the source, we should look at the characteristics of morality. Morality is prescriptive, a command, universal, objective, and authoritative. Prescriptions and commands are forms of communication, and communication happens only between minds. Also, because morals deal with a purpose and a will, the source of morality must also have a purpose and a will. Because morals are universal and transcend individuals, society, and time, the source must be universal and transcendent. Since morals are authoritative, they must come from an authority, and authority can only be held by a person. Finally, this person must have the power to impose his moral will on us and provide us with an ability to know that moral will through intuition. Thus, morals come from a transcendent person who has the power and authority to impose a moral law on us, and we call this person God. Another indication of where morals come from is found in what happens when we violate the moral law. We've all ignored our moral intuition and done what we know is wrong, and the result has been guilt. Sometimes it's obvious to us whom we feel guilty towards. At other times, the object of our guilt is not so clear, like when our guilt stems from our own thoughts or motives. To whom do we feel guilty then? The answer is in the question, whom, not what. 
we feel guilty towards persons, not objects. And we don't just feel guilty toward the person we deceived or harmed, but we understand the law came from someone, not something, and we feel guilt towards that person. But is something good just because God says it is, or is there a standard that God's using? If something is good just because God says it is, then the standard is arbitrary, since it could have been something other than what it is. Or if God uses something outside himself as a standard to judge things, then God is not truly God, since he relies on something outside himself. Either way is a fatal flaw against the claim that God is the source of morality. However, those are not the only options. A third option says that things are good because they reflect God's nature and character. God's character is the standard of his goodness, and his preferences are extensions of his character, not arbitrary decrees. Because God does not change, the standard does not change. And because the standard is internal, God is not dependent on anything outside himself. The argument for morality for the existence of God could be made in a couple of ways. A modest case uses it along with other arguments as only one part of a whole case. Others have made transcendental arguments with it. This approach asks what the necessary preconditions are for objective morality and argues that only the God of the Bible can account for it. This is obviously a more ambitious take on the argument, but it can be extremely effective. Both methods rely on the same claim, that objectivism is the only coherent view of morality and the only view of morality that can be lived consistently and it points very strongly toward the existence of a transcendent, powerful, personal God. So, inshallah, those were uh, beneficial for uh, anyone who was listening, and um, just wanted to look at some of the verses in the Quran in regards to the moral argument. Um, we see that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Uh, when God created the universe, God defined what is good and what is evil. Uh, God set this standard, and it's by these attributes that we know what the moral truths of this world are. Um, God tells us in 91, uh, chapter 91, verse 6 through 8, it says, The earth in him who sustains it, the soul in him who created it, then showed it what is evil and what is good. God showed the human being what is evil and what is good. This is not limited to one group of people. Uh, God, good and evil are universal truths. Just about all of us come from different cultures, backgrounds, societies that, you know, at one point or potentially... Uh, uphold unjust or evil behaviors. And it's our duty to rid ourselves of these immoral behaviors. And it's not an excuse to say that, oh, this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been. Um, and God gives us the example in chapter 2, verse 170 to 171, about maintaining the status quo. Uh, the header is maintaining the status quo, a human tragedy. It says, when they are told, follow what God has revealed herein, they say we follow only what we found our parents doing. What if their parents did not understand and were not guided? The example of such disbelievers is that of parrots who repeat what they hear of sounds and calls without understanding, deaf, dumb, and blind they cannot understand. So, you know, let's not be in this context of just repeating what's being said to us. Let's think critically. You know, if we see actions and behaviors that are immoral, irrespective of their legality, we need to stand up against that. In 5.100, it reads, Proclaim, the bad and the good are not the same. Even if the abundance of bad may impress you, you shall reverence God, even if you are in the minority. O you who possess intelligence, that you may succeed. And you think about how obvious of a statement this is. The bad and the good are not the same. Yet there's people that have committed their lives to try to explain, to try to convince people that there is no good, there is no bad, it's all relative. 
Um, anything is permissible. And it reminds me of a quote uh, from John Lennox. He, was, uh, he cited someone. It says that if God does not exist, then everything is permissible, meaning that anything can go, uh, any behavior, irrespective of how immoral, uh, how outrageous it is, it might be justified to that one individual, and we have no uh, say in the sense of saying what's right and what's wrong because it's all relative. Um, C.S. Lewis, when he was moving away from uh, atheism, uh, he wrote this piece. He says, My arguments against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what straight, uh, straight line is. What, what was I comparing the universe when uh, I called it unjust, right? In this example, C.S. Lewis is talking about the universe, and he, ha he knew inherently, he knew what just and unjust is, and he was calling the universe unjust, meaning that in order for the universe to be unjust, there has to be some standard by which just is. And if uh, just and unjust is just an opinion, there is no standard. You know, God, by definition, is just. God, by definition, is good. You know, giving us a baseline of what is good and what is bad. To neglect these facts and go by our own opinions and not constantly calibrate towards the standards that God set before us, we'd be doing ourselves a huge disservice. And if society uh, abided by this, then we would be in absolute chaos. You know, imagine a world where it's accepted that anything goes. There is no good. There is no bad. Uh, lying, eugenics, uh, cheating, stealing, holocaust, you know, all these uh, horrendous acts could be justified. Um... In, in 873, it reads, Those who disbelieve are the allies of one another. Unless you keep these commandments, there will be chaos on earth and terrible corruption. Uh, 2371, it says, Indeed, if the truth conformed to their wishes, there would be chaos in the heavens and the earth. Everything in them would be corrupted. We have given them their proof, but they're disregarding their proof. And you think about how much of an obvious statement there is. This is that there is moral, moral, universal moral truths. That this is not limited to the idea or the opinion of one individual. Uh, it's something that becomes so inherent in us that when we see uh, immoral actions, that you know, we our stomach churns. Uh, even infants realize what is good and what is bad. Yet, when we get older, our egos kick in and try to convince us otherwise. You know, God is the standard of which all our actions, decisions uh, should be measured by to determine if something is good or evil. You know, without objective moral values, there are no universal truths. When it comes to morality, it's only one person's opinion versus another's. This is what distinguishes us from animals. But unlike animals, we have the responsibility and intellect to make moral judgments. Uh, 779 says, We have committed to hell multitudes of jinns and humans. They have minds with which they do not understand, eyes with which they do not see, ears with, ears with which they do not hear. They are like animals. No, they are far worse. They are totally unaware. This idea of putting our opinions against objective moral truths stems from the ego. Ego is the belief that I can never be wrong, that my way is the right way, that anything I do has moral justification. Uh, 2543, it says the ego is a god. Um, have you seen the one whose god is his own ego? Will you be his advocate? Do you think that most of them hear or understand? They're just like animals. No, they are far worse. And it continues in 25, 45 through 47, it says, Infinite blessings from God. Have you not seen how your Lord designed the shadow? If he willed, he could have made it fixed. Then he would have designed the sun accordingly. But he designed it to move slowly. He is the one who designed the night to be a cover for you to sleep and rest. He made the day a resurrection. And it's interesting that God is talking about ego, and then he basically talks about the shadow. 
And uh, while you can have you know good without evil, you can't have evil without good. Just like you can't have sunshine without shadows, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. So this was a uh, statement I picked up, and it's it's. I'm going to read it again because I don't think I did it justice. So you can have good without evil, but you can't have evil without good, because evil in essence is the uh, the the counteraction of good. And similarly, you can have sunshine without shadows, but you cannot have shadows without sunshine. And in this verse, it says, have you not seen how your Lord designed the shadow? If he willed, he could have made it fixed. Then we would have designed the sun accordingly. What this uh, corresponds to me, what I take away from this, is the fact that God is the one who designed this system. God designed what it is to be good and what it is to be evil. God set that standard. If he wanted to, he could have made it, you know, a different way. But this is the standard by which God uh, designed it. And, you know, without a moral compass... In universal moral truths, we would be in blundering and needless. And in 51, 6 through 8, it says the day of judgment is inevitable. Despite the perfectly created sky, you continue to dispute the truth. Deviating but therefrom are the deviators. Woe to the falsifiers. In their blundering, they are totally heedless. Anyone who makes the argument that there are no moral truths, that anything is permissible, uh, that you know, good, evil, these are just mere opinions of uh, one another, is just fighting the most obvious of human tendencies, the most obvious of uh, inherent human beliefs, of realizing what is good and what is evil. And you see that, you know, some people, they, they actively, actively seek to disbelieve. And they, they convince themselves of all kinds of nonsense to get to that belief. So let's not be heedless. Let's not, uh, not be blundering. Let's acknowledge the, uh, the, uh, the knowledge that God bestowed upon us and do our utmost to promote righteousness and forbid evil and not make excuses that we don't know what is evil and what is good and that it's all relative. Uh, God willing, we're going to stop there. If you've got any comments, questions, uh, hit us up at koranatalk at gmail.com. Until next time, peace and God bless.